moving right along to our second speaker for the night, which is Sophie Burgess. Sophie is a marine scientist from New Zealand, and she previously studied glow-in-the-dark scallops to help make the um, New Zealand scallop fishery more sustainable. Now here in Melbourne, she teaches students from ages uh, ranging from prep to university about varying topics from weather science and clouds in a bottle to sustainability in engineering. She still likes to play in rock pools and collect shells at the beach. In the future, she's tossing up whether to become famous, get back into the fisheries science, or keep getting people excited about science. Please make Sophie welcome. Thank you for the introduction, Sarah. So, hi guys. Tonight, I'm going to tell the story of a man who is an idol of mine and I'm sure many others who have worked in my field with, in my opinion, the coolest job in the world. I'm sure many of you can probably guess who he is already. It's Sir David Frederick Attenborough, followed by eight post-nominal letters. And for those who are interested, I'm going to run through those now. So, he's got an order of merit the Order of the Companions of Honour. He's a commander of the Royal Victorian Order, commander of the Order of the British Empire, fellow of the Royal Society, fellow of the Linnaean Society of London, fellow of the London Zoological Society, and fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London. Don't know what antiquaries are, so I'll carry on. So this nanogenarian childhood memory of mine has touched the hearts of many and made an impact in my life and path as a scientist. So I'm grateful and honoured to be given the opportunity to speak about him tonight. As a side note, how many other 90-something-year-olds climbing trees and spanning mountains do you know? Realistically, in the later years, he was probably helicoptered or wrenched winched up those trees and mountains, but that's still awesome, I reckon. So when I first watched Edinburgh, initially I just loved the sound of his voice as he described the phenomena in front of him on screen. He later was a large element of some of my years in high school and at university when I was studying biological sciences. Some lecturers, if I'm being honest, felt like an entire hour of watching Edinburgh videos which was the best thing ever, if I'm you know, being honest. Not that my lectures weren't interesting, but you know, Edinburgh was pretty awesome back in the day. He also has quite a sense of humour and loves talking about animal sex. In nearly every interview that I've seen of him on TV, animal sex just slips in some way or another. <laughs> One uh, funny example that I saw recently was he was discussing how sloths, or in his accent, sloths <laughs> like to pick up chicks and it turns out they all congregate around a communal poo pile at the bottom of the tree. Yeah I know, once every 10 to 14 days though, um, the sloths are a little bit slow and they don't move too quickly in that area. So um, yeah, sloths will only toilet on the ground because they've got a high sense of smell and the only way they can recognise the opposite sex is by sniffing their poo. So that's how they do that. <laughs> and I imagine if they're just hanging around in the tree, they probably won't interact with each other if they don't go to the poo pile. 
<laughs> now, um, if we rewind the clock back to David's younger days, so 91-something years ago, he was a middle child of three children. He lived and grew up on campus at the University College of Leicester, where his dad was principal. I reckon that's pretty awesome. You know, you'd find some cool stuff there. Um, and his passion for the natural world began at an early age, where he collected fossils, rocks, and other interesting specimens which he kept in jars and developed his own mini-museum by the age of seven. I also found out about a cunning ploy he came up with when he was 11. He somehow found out that the zoology department at Dad's work needed some newts. So he put his hand up to supply these via his dad and charged a British threepence each. Turns out, though, unbeknownst to the university, they were collected from a pond only five metres away from the department. Obviously pays to be in the know there. <laughs> now, believe it or not, he was not a top student. He dreaded taking his report cards home to his dad, who he described as quite a stern father. He would, of course, steam them open first to know what he was in for before he handed them over to dad, as I'm sure uh, many kids still do today. Now, on one occasion, his father opened his report, read for what David felt like an hour, and uh, simply paused, looked up at him and said, son, I think you should go. And he was probably, you know, under 10 at this age. Another instant of this report card reading, he, sim he simply said, so son, what do you think? David admitted in an interview later that he assumed the conversation was free to move on to anything else besides his report. <laughs> um, so he replied with something along the lines of, well, Dad, uh, I think you're getting a bit bald. What do you reckon? <laughs> but despite all this, um, he was later delighted to find out that he could get a degree doing what he'd already been doing as a child, and that was collecting fossils and biological samples and finding out what they were. So what he initially studied uh, was geology and zoology at the Cambridge University, which he completed in 1945. And two years after that, he was called to serve in the Royal Navy which he served in for two years. After the Navy, he edited some science textbooks for children before wanting to move on to bigger and better things. So the first thing he initially applied for was to be on BBC Radio, but got rejected. Although, he was later approached again for BBC TV, which was just starting up at the time, with not many households actually owning TVs, um, this was back in the 1940s. And he was mainly working behind the scenes, though, and was encouraged to stay there um, by his new boss. Funny story, um, his boss actually said to him to avoid being on screen due to his, quote, disproportionately large teeth. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's grown into them since then. <laughs> Um, he later resigned from BBC to study again um, a postgraduate degree in social anthropology while still doing a bit of filming on the side. But before he could f finish that degree, he got offered another job at BBC too as a controller 
Um, so from 1952 to the early 1960s, David produced several shows and eventually became a presenter um, by chance when another presenter got ill. And the show that he was on was called ZooQuest. So this show initially started by bringing animals into studio from the zoo. Um, but David felt this was a bit fake and misrepresented the animals a little bit. So what he decided to do was team up with the, one of the reptile guys at the zoo and they organized expeditions in the wild to be part of the show. And there were quite a few funny episodes and mishaps technology-wise um, produced as part of this series. One of the episodes was themed around explaining the use of opposable thumbs. So the initial plan, um, the film crew were hoping just for some background footage of gorillas, while David stood in the foreground, foreground explaining the importance of opposable thumbs. So he stood on the forest floor with a large male near a tree behind him, and not long after he started getting ready to speak, the male and a female were down on the ground right next to him. <laughs> the male sat down beside him, put his hand on David's head, while the female sat back casually, staring right into his eyes. In awe, he simply stared back, unable to find the appropriate moment to mention opposable thumbs. Before long, he was lying on the ground with some baby gorillas, which rolled all over him and started taking off his shoes, putting their butts in his face and other body parts. Um, and from the video, his facials were just classic. His eyebrows were just, you know, almost off his forehead. And you could see all he wanted to do was crack up laughing, but I think he didn't want to disrupt their behavior. <laughs> and later, um, he went back to speak to the cameraman, and they explained that they'd only filmed the last 10 minutes of the entire encounter, as uh, they didn't want to run out of film in case he started talking about the opposable thumbs. <laughs> it was only um, by chance at the suggestion of another crew member that they filmed what they did for some good background content. He later uh, explained in an interview that he kind of thought it was irrelevant to explain the opposable thumbs since they were using their thumbs to remove his shoes. <laughs> another funny recollection he had from one of his earlier years of filming, I think it was from the Life series, was when they first started to use cameras which could film in the dark. So he remembered it being great from the camp for the cameramen, but not so great for him, as he couldn't see what was going on around him. For instance, whether or not there might be a rhino or something like that coming up behind him. They said um, that they were filming one night and that he was just about to start speaking, realized his clip-on mic was missing, so he alerted the crew, and they simply said, oh, go and find it then, in the pitch black, long grass. You know, great plan, guys. Unsurprisingly, David found that quite challenging, but he did come up with a plan. So he still had the little transmitter box um, in his back pocket, so he got the crew to hold on to that while he wandered around in the dark in the long grass saying, hello, am I getting closer? Hello, while his uh, film crew had the little receiver on the other end. Um, and it could still obviously pick up the sound, the little mic. Um, 
Yeah, I'm assuming they found it. Actually, don't know. It was just a funny story I heard and kind of stopped watching after that. Um, so the next story highlights more of a cultural challenge rather than a technological challenge. Um, the crew were in Papua New Guinea walking up a hill. I think it was a bit of a jungle. There were lots of trees in the background. It was one of those black and white videos, so I couldn't really figure out exactly where they were. But they were traipsing up the hill. They had some guides with them. And all of a sudden, the guides stopped, looked at Dave, and they said, no go, no go. They're bad fella, very bad fella. And, you know, David looked at them, sort of convinced himself in his head, okay, we're all humans, we'll be civil. So they continued up the hill. Soon after that, uh, 70 to 80 men with spears, waving knives, came screaming in their direction. And uh, he reflects back later, admitting he almost soiled himself um, and didn't really remember what happened at the time, but he did see on film later that what he'd actually done um, in the scenario is he just reached out his hand and said, good afternoon, chaps. <laughs> um, I think it worked, they didn't die. Um, and he later found out that running at you with spears and knives yelling out calls was just simply how they greeted people. So, you know, good call on David's part. So if we continue through his career, he soon became a controller at BBC Two, but made sure there was a clause in his contract allowing him to make programs on a casual basis still. And in 1969, he got promoted to director of programs at BBC and eventually was put forward as candidate for director general at BBC. But he had to admit he wasn't too excited about that job as it was quite removed from his original passion of making programs. So the next year he resigned and went back to write and present natural history shows on a freelance basis, which I think is a pretty bold move because he would have got some sweet pay. He also got married and had two kids somewhere in there don't know when, he's, and he's since spent 60 years on screen in total. Before reaching this talk, if I'm honest, all I really knew about him was he was this cute old guy who got really excited about biology that I kind of wanted to be like one day. So I'm going to fill you in with some interesting and funny things that I didn't know, um, which you can add to your list of trivia material or something like that. Um, so David has had at least 15 species and genera, both living and extinct, named in his honour. And some of the examples include birds, reptiles, a ghost shrimp, an echidna, a fossilised armoured fish, a miniature marsupial lion, I don't even know what that is, <laughs> a flightless weevil, and one of the largest carnivorous plants. And he's collected 32 honorary degrees from British universities, and that's more than any other person. And he has honorary doctoral degrees from Cambridge and Oxford, and an honorary doctor of letters from the University of Leicester. And believe it or not, there is one animal that he really dislikes. In an interview, he once said, I don't like rats but there's not much else I don't like. The problem with rats is they have no fear of human beings. They're loaded with foul diseases. They would run the place given half the chance. And I've had them leap out of the lavatory while I've been sitting on it. Fair enough, I thought. 
Uh, finally, there are a few take-home messages we can take away from Edinburgh's story. He's authentic. His reactions to what he sees on camera are exactly as we would expect them to be in real life. Take the gorilla example. And he says, follow your passions. I mean, turning down the BBC director position would have been a tough one, but he followed his passion for natural um, film, natural history filming instead. And I guess finally, old people can still be cool and have fun, even in their 90s. <laughs>